Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. I want to jump right into the scripture today. Luke 3650. And let's stand and let's read it together like we did last week. I like that. So it's a larger portion of scripture, and I just want you to get it down in your heart and read what we're doing today. Um, really understand it. So let's start with verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to eat with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the, house, in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears And she wiped them with the hair of her head and began kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is and who is touching him that she is a sinner. And Jesus responded and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. The one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he canceled the debts of both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I assume the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, and she loved much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little." And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And then those who were reclining at the table with him began saying to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Father God, I pray that this word really will get down into your hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thanks for standing and reading that with me. I think the word of God is worth standing up for, don't you? Hallelujah. Well, we're going to go into some foodie facts. We've been in this uh, series on foodies, and really we're just going through the book of Luke and talking about the different instances where Jesus ministered to people through uh, or, or around the table where there was food involved, okay? So whenever there was food involved, Jesus used it. And uh, we started last week with, uh, with uh, the story of Levi, a, a meal with Matthew. Matthew, of course, was Levi. Levi was Matthew. We, we know that from last week. But this week... Um, we're getting into another story, Luke chapter 7, and, and we know right away from the text that Simon is a Pharisee. These are some foodie facts for you, okay? These are foodie facts. Simon was a Pharisee. We know that. Notice that the Pharisee is named here, and I'm just going to throw out some things that I noticed as, we, as, as I read through this and studied through this this week. It should uh, remind us that because Simon is named here, it should remind us that Jesus sees everyone as an individual and not just a label that society slaps on them or an individual would put on themselves. Sometimes we put on our own labels, don't we? And it's interesting because many times in Scripture, 
The Phar- it just says the Pharisees are just kind of lumped into a group. This is one of the instances where this Pharisee has a name. The name is Simon. He's an individual. And he's not just a Pharisee. He has a name, and Jesus loves him as much as anyone. Simon seems to be um, at least somewhat of a reasonable guy, too. You remember what, Pharise- what we, we talked about Pharisees last week and what that meant to be a Pharisee. They were oftentimes the enemy of Jesus. But Simon, in this story, it, it, obviously is a Pharisee, uh, but he, uh, it seems to, he seems to be reasonable, at least a little bit, by the fact that he was requesting and inviting Jesus to eat with him. He said, Jesus, you need to come over to my house. We need to, we need to you know, chop it up a little bit. We need to talk. We need to spend some time together. We need to eat together. He also referred to Jesus as teacher, which didn't fully acknowledge him as Lord, but it seems to be used here as a term of respect, or I guess it is possible that he's using this term with a little sarcasm as, as in, okay, you have something to tell me. Remember, Jesus said, I have something to tell you, Simon. He goes, say it, teacher. He might have been kind of saying, you know, uh, yeah, magnificent teacher, please uh, bestow your awesome knowledge upon me as if you can teach me anything. Could have been like that. We don't know. We can assume that Simon had an air about him like the other Pharisees. He felt he was above sinners. And there was definitely an arrogance within him. We, we know this, of course, because of what he was thinking in his heart. If Jesus was truly a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman that is touching him is. I, I mean, she's a sinner. How, if he's a true prophet, how could he be letting her touch him? Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and sharp and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is an interesting picture because in Jesus is discerning what is in the heart of Simon. Simon never said that. He just thought it in his heart, and Jesus knew it. Jesus is the Word of God, amen? He's the Word of God, and he can discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Everybody close your eyes for one second, or maybe a few more. Jesus knows what's in your heart. He knows your thoughts. He knows your emotions. He knows your feelings. He knows it all. He knows the evil. He knows the good. He knows your heart. And as you're sitting there with your eyes closed, I I, I mean, I I don't know about you, but I think right away that that makes me feel a little... um, maybe not anxiety per se, but maybe just a little awkward. He knows everything. Everything. That's sobering. Makes you feel a little naked, right? And nobody wants to be naked in church. So, but spiritually speaking, he sees everything. Jesus literally looks beyond the outward and sees the inward. He sees the heart. He saw what Simon was thinking in his heart. Simon never actually said it out loud, as I said. And Jesus saw the heart of this woman, too. He saw past her sin and could see the motives of her heart. Those are just some foodie facts. Here's another one. Let's talk about the phrase, reclining at table. It's an interesting phrase, and it occurs three times in our Scripture this morning. I always pictured this as leaning back in their chairs or something. Like, okay, you've eaten, now you lean back and, you know, you pop the button and you just kind of relax, right? (laughs) Honestly, how many have had to pop the button on Thanksgiving? (laughs) Just be honest. Not because you were pregnant, because you ate too much, right? All right. 
Some of you aren't telling the truth. But I always pictured it as leaning back in their chairs, reclining at the table, or reclining at table, like a literal recliner. But, but then it dawned on me that, that they didn't have lazy boys back then, so what does it really mean? And, and remember that they were living under Roman authority and control, and, and, and one of the customs uh, that the Romans had was in reference to how they ate. You may have heard the phrase, to sit at meat. This is basically the same thing as reclining at table or reclining at the table, we would say. So in a nicer home during that period of time, like Simon the Pharisee uh, would have had, he would have had a nicer home, there, would have, there were often three rectangular tables that were set in a U-shape to form an open square in the center of them. It was left open on one end in order for the servants to serve those that sat around the outside of the U-shape configuration. Some of you might remember our Good Friday experience and the tables were set up that way, weren't they? And what he's showing you right now here is this is a Roman triclinium. It's a Roman triclinium. This is how they ate usually. It wasn't, uh, uh, the triclinium, or basically was the word for dining room within the Roman buildings and homes, and became really a common cultural practice at the time. And instead of benches or chairs around the outside of the U-shape, they had what they called dinner beds that were set at an incline towards the table, as you can see in the picture. So you would lay on this inclined dinner bed, your feet towards the ground and your head towards the table, and these dinner beds were usually wide enough to have three or four people on them, and they were just several inches taller at the head end than the table where the food was served. Now, don't change yet, don't change yet, don't change yet. Thank you. Um, you see there at the, the table they're laying there, is this how you pictured eating back then? but this is pretty much how it was. Is this how you pictured the Last Supper being? Because this is pretty much how it was. It was customary, it was common practice, and it was intimate. I mean, they're laying in beds and leaning on one elbow and reaching over and eating, and it's very, very close quarters. And, you know, I imagine that it was a little like charcuterie, grabbing the food. I mean, let's face it, they didn't have gravy-soaked potatoes and sauce-soaked pasta like we like today, right? They had dates and fruit, different fruits and maybe nuts and bread and different things that they could grab, maybe some spiced meats, things of that nature, reaching and grabbing and eating. I, I, I just thought that was an amazing picture, and we're going to get to why that's important in a minute. Show the next pic. So this is actual footage of, of one that was carved into stone. This would have been a dining room in, in a Roman house or, or a Roman building. This looks like a smaller one, so it would probably be in a house. And you see the incline there. They would have put mattresses there. The mattresses would have been stuffed with straw, feathers, certain kinds of, uh, uh, you know, cottony-type weeds, you know, like that, that uh, where the buds pop open and there's some cottony stuff. Anything like that, they would have filled um, in those mattresses, and they would have laid on them, and then the servants would come in, lay the food out, and they would grab it. A very intimate setting, triclinium. And it's interesting, even Leonardo da Vinci got this wrong in his painting that depicted the Last Supper. Show that picture quick. Here they all are sitting at a table, one side. It, 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 it's not customary at the time. And, and there goes... There goes any credibility to what became known as the Da Vinci Code. 
Because a wrong depiction in even how they gathered around the tables sort of pours water on any conspiracy theories that tried to claim the scriptures were not accurate. But let's give Leonardo a break, okay? I mean, he didn't even paint the Last Supper scene until 1,500 years after it occurred. Do you know how long that is, by the way? He, he was bound to get it wrong. Just to put that in perspective, that would be like you and I writing about the final, kind of the final end of the Roman Empire, and then future generations considering uh, those writings as if they were eyewitness accounts. Us writing about that now, 1,500 years ago. But, but understand, given the times in the region in which the Last Supper occurred, and even the phrase reclining at table, which is also used in the biblical account of the Last Supper, they would have not been sitting, again, on that one side of a long table. It's far more likely that they would have been around the square that the food tables created, lying or laying at an incline while eating. An intimate setting. Something else to consider in this passage is the three cultural expectations of hospitality of the time period that Simon completely ignored. The act of washing feet was the first one. Jesus basically rebuked Simon for not offering him water for his feet. This was part of good manners in those times. Dusty roads with sandaled feet made the frequent washing of feet not only a luxury, but a necessity for comfort and for good health. And it was as much part, a part of hospitality to guests as feeding them a meal. And it was usually the servant's job to take care of this when guests came. Not only did Simon neglect, though, to, to, to not have the, ser- or to have the servants wash Jesus' feet, he neglected to do that. He never even offered Jesus water in order for him to do it himself. And let's not forget that Jesus would later wash the feet of the disciples and show how the master of all was simultaneously the servant of all. Talk about over-the-top manners. Secondly, that was one cultural miscue for a, a, just an expectation that, of hosts, a cultural expectation of hosts was washing feet. Another one, secondly, uh, was that Simon gave him no kiss. This is a little strange in our culture because everything in this day and time is so over-sexualized. But in these times, it was customary for the host to give their guest a kiss. Yes, even on the mouth. Ooh, someone said. <laughs> but other traditions involved the forehead, cheek, or hands, but it was always expressed as a platonic greeting of love and happiness over the guest's arrival. But it was, it, it was, it was meant to be, it wasn't meant to be sexual in any way at all, and you have to understand that. Paul uses the phrase in his writings, 1 Thessalonians, both 1 and 2 Corinthians, and in Romans, all use this phrase as Paul ends those, those letters. It was expected, he uses the, the, the phrase, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Says it. And we would throw that out because, again, of our over-sexualized culture, that wouldn't be right. It would seem weird. I ain't doing that. Who's hosting today, by the way? Are you back there? Raise your hand if you were hosting at one of the doors. Any kisses given? No. Did anybody get any kiss from the hosts? Does anybody want a kiss from the hosts? I don't know. You guys need to listen and follow Scripture. Listen to and follow Scripture, don't you? Understand, very culturally uh, understood back then. It was understood back then. 
that would be very confusing, culturally speaking, for us today. You know, when we went to um, Botswana on a missions trip a few years back, it, it was interesting to see grown men walking down the street holding hands. Jared, do you want to come up here for a second? Donnie, you come up too. No, no, come on, come on. Come on, Donnie, come on. He's trying to check the scores on his phone, so. No, <laughs> he's taking notes. Oh, okay. Got a life group later. Preach with me, brothers. When we went to Botswana, I'm going to hold your hand for a while until it's uncomfortable. It, it's already uncomfortable. It was really interesting to see grown men walking down the street holding hands like this. Now, you have to understand, in our culture, we would instantly assume that they were living in an alternative lifestyle, wouldn't we? That is sad. That's the devil, by the way. In Botswana, it was an expression of friendship and respect. I respect you. Your friend. I, I, I respect you and we're friends. I, you're friends too. Yeah, you just lift your arms up. Yeah. <laughs> and just, just, to, just to solidify this fact, homosexuals in Botswana do everything they can to hide the fact that they're homosexual for fear of their lives. It, wasn't, it was illegal up until 2019, about one time we were there, to be homosexual. And even today still, if you are deemed that that's the lifestyle you're living, people will kill you. And yet you see guys walking down the street like this all over the place because it's understood that it's friendship and respect. Your palms are sweaty, okay. <laughs> Two men holding hands in Botswana was kind of like the Iowa Hawkeyes walking out on the field holding hands. You ever see that and go, that's kind of weird. But it's a, it's a sign of unity, agreement, respect, friendship, and family between people. Like, we're family. We're going to hold hands. We agree that much that we're like family. The holy kiss back then was really no different. It was a holy kiss. Platonic, didn't mean anything sexual at all. They just greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, I'm not trying to say that we should greet each other with holy kisses, right? I'm, I'm not saying that. Everyone's like, Phew, good. Because culturally, things change, right? And you have to operate within a culture. I get that. Even though there are some things that you got to go counterculture with. But be careful about what you go counterculture, that it's, it's worth going counterculture, right? If it's worth it if, it, if it, if it's important enough to do that. So the holy kiss didn't happen from Simon. The third cultural expectation of a host that Simon neglected was the anointing of their guest's head with oil. This was a mark of courtesy due to an honored guest. It, it was like owed them, like get oil on their head. And Jesus had entered this man's home because he was invited to a feast. And in the providence of Galilee and possibly in the city of Capernaum is where they think this probably took place. And remember that, that in this part of the world, the sun is scorching hot. It's not like there's lots of grass and meadows and, I mean, all over the place. It's scorching hot. There's a lot of dusty dirt. A host anointing an honored guest's head brought a sense of comfort and refreshment, some relief for dry, wind-burnt skin. 
Jesus said to Simon, you didn't offer oil for my head. An interesting thing there, we're still in foodie facts here, which is the Greek, the Greek word is eleion or olive oil. It literally means olive oil. It was a common commodity, pretty inexpensive, and yet Simon, wealthier guy, more, more nicer home, had some money as a, as a Pharisee, some sense of, of a comfortable life, middle class, if you will. He would have had oil. That wouldn't have been a problem, but he didn't even offer it. So you could say that Simon's lack of good manners was a window. I mean, he didn't do the three things that were expected of any host. Those lack of good manners were, were a window into what was really in his heart. And by the way, you can tell a lot about a person by observing the kind of manners they have. I'm going to say it again. You can tell a lot about a person by observing their manners. Amen. Girls, never date a man, and for goodness sake, don't marry a man that is void of good manners. Amen. Don't do it. And guys, don't spit or chew or go with women that do. Because <laughs> they don't have good manners either. Good manners matter. They absolutely matter. They are a litmus test of the heart. Self-absorbed, egotistical people do not have good manners. They're too busy thinking of themselves and what's not fair and what's in it for them and how the situation they find themselves themselves in affects them. I wonder what's going through Simon's mind. If he's like, you know, I got Jesus coming over, now I'm really going to be able to go back to the Pharisees and tell them what, what he's, this guy's really all about. Maybe he was just laying in the grass trying to find a way to, to trip Jesus up or to hear him say something that was off the wall. I don't know. We don't really know that. But we know his manners weren't any good. So maybe that was a little bit of a window into his heart. There's some of the foodie facts in this story, and there's others, but those are some I wanted to point out today. So where's the beef in this stuff? Well, it's no shocker that Jesus uses the actions of this sinful woman to teach truth to this religious expert, this Pharisee, this, this guy named Simon. And don't miss the irony here. Simon has spent his whole pharisaical life, it, life trying to avoid sinners like this. She was beneath him someone to avoid, and certainly someone that should not be touched or be allowed to touch anyone as righteous as he himself was. And here Jesus is allowing her to do just that. And he basically says this to Simon, people who have been forgiven much love much, while people who have been forgiven little Love little. What does that really mean? It, it really begs the question, is there anyone who hasn't been forgiven much? much? Let me ask this question. Is there anybody in this room who hasn't been forgiven much? Are there people who have been forgiven more than others? Not really. Not really. Because sin is sin, right? We all have it. That means no one's better than anyone else because they sin less. That means someone who maybe did, committed some sins or was involved in some things for a longer period of time and there's more consequences involved from this world. Uh, maybe they're dealing with a lot more of those kinds of consequences because of their specific sin. It doesn't mean that they're worse than the people who maybe didn't get involved in those same things. It's an interesting thing Jesus says here. People who have been forgiven much love much, while people who have been forgiven little love little. And I think people take that verse or that, that, that phrase from Jesus and they say, well, they kind of form their theology around it. But I want, I want to tell you something. 
you don't have to sin more to love more. Right? Are you following me? That's not the point here. The point is that those who understand how far any sin takes them away from Christ, they will love much. It's about understanding the consequences of sin. It's not about, let's see how many sins. You've committed 10, you've committed 12. I guess, you know, the person who's been forgiven 12 loves the person who committed 10, loves Jesus more, right? That's not what he's saying. You don't have to go out and experience all the horrific sins of this world to understand how much he has forgiven you for. So, so that you can love him more. You just need to understand that no matter who you are, you have been forgiven much. You've been forgiven much. And, and here, here it is in the Pastor Barry translation of this verse. If you believe that you've committed but only a few sins, then your love level for Christ will be less than the person who understands that any of their unforgiven sins put God at an unreachable distance from them. I hope you followed that. If not, go back and watch it online. It's, it's not how much you've sinned that determines your love for Christ. It's how much of the sin you've committed that you actually acknowledge. That had to be a, a bit of an in-your-face moment for Simon, if he even understood what Jesus was saying. He probably didn't. Oh, yeah, I didn't sin very much, so yeah, I can see where she would love more. She sinned more. Which him thinking that is a sin of pride. Isn't it amazing how Jesus talked to these people and he was like miles ahead of them and they didn't even know it, right? They were just like hearing his words and they're going, oh, yeah, yeah. It's phenomenal to me. Let, let me say this too. The best testimony is not of those who have been deep in a sinful life for years and then find Christ. And the best testimony is not of the person who has always known the truth of gospel, never fallen into some of those most consequential sins that the world has to offer. The best testimony comes from the person who knows that their sin was destroying them and Jesus forgave them and set them free. Amen. End of story. That's it. That's it. Worship, true worship, Worship that is expressed in spirit and in truth. Authentic worship flows from an individual who understands that about their sin. And there are some things about that worship uh, that this lady who is unnamed in the Bible, we, we know uh, Mary anoints Jesus later. We know that name just prior to his death on the cross, but this is way before that. Truly, this unnamed woman has, has forever taught the master class on real worship. She taught us that, number one, worship serves. Worship serves. Simon didn't take care of his guest. He ignored three cultural expectations of hosting. This woman wasn't even invited, yet in her desperation, she busts into the room bringing, and began bringing Jesus what he was worthy of, worthship is the old English word in which we get our modern-day word, worship. She served Jesus with her worship of him and completely did what Simon was expected to do but failed to do. She washed his feet, not with water from a jar, but with repentant tears. And she didn't grab a towel. She used her hair to wipe the dirt and grime that was caked on his feet. You talk about humbling. Her hair now carried the dirt from his feet. This is the posture of someone who is repenting, someone who is truly sorry. Then she begins kissing him, not his head as a, as a host would, respectfully do, but his feet, 
kissing his feet, and not just a single kiss, but continually kissing his feet, not with sexual overtones, but these were the feet that would eventually be pierced for her sins, and not just hers, but for, the, for all of our sins. And I'm not saying she fully understood all this, but these were the feet that would separate her from her sin. These were the feet that would take that sin as far away as the east is from the west. She's kissing those feet over and over again. Forget how dirty they were. It was nothing compared to the filth of sin that he would remove from us all. And the fact that he was laying in a bed with his feet to the floor in that incline, to me, that just makes it all the more intimate, all the more personal. It gives the lot better picture. And not only did she wash his feet with her tears and her hair and kissed them over and over, she then, number three, anointed his feet. Not with common olive oil, a different Greek word is used here. It's the word myron, and it doesn't mean olive oil, it means ointment. It refers to a more fragrant, expensive mixture of oils and spices that was used as a balm or a salve to bring healing. Simon didn't waste his inexpensive olive oil on Jesus, but this woman has poured out a whole container of expensive aromatic ointment. A perfume, as the NASB puts it. And it was probably, they figure, worth a year's wages. And if she were a woman of ill repute, like uh, some Bible scholars believe, a prostitute, then she was using and giving the very thing to Jesus that she once used to her advantage in her life of sin. You know, people probably didn't smell all that great back then. Can you imagine the heat, the sweat, the dust? Ever been to the Iowa State Fair at a 110-degree day? (laughs) Crowds moving in on you? The aroma, and I'm not talking from the cow barn or the pig barn. The people aroma. People can smell. And her trying to, if she was a prostitute, trying to be desirable to, to men that would maybe pay her for those kinds of favors. Her perfume was important to her. That was pretty, that's pretty important to her job, to her livelihood. And she poured the whole thing out. A year's wages. Money she didn't have. What an act of worship. This was a financial sacrifice given unto the Lord because he was worthy of it. It was worth-ship. He was worth it. She served him in her worship of him. And I want to make a connection here. True worship of Jesus, it never takes, it gives. When you worship with an authentic heart, There's no doubt that you will receive from the Lord, but the motive should always be to serve and to give, never to take. We don't worship the Lord so that we get something in return. Amen? Amen. Like, I need to, I'm going to go worship because I need something. Well, I'm doing pretty good, so I don't need to worship him. 
Our worship isn't like rubbing the, 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 the genie in a bottle. Like, if I worship, then he'll give me something. That's the wrong motive. We worship him because he deserves our worship. End of story. Worship musicians and singers should never worship to advance their musical careers. And I love that about our worship team. We don't have worship people that are doing that. There are, there are in, the, in the kingdom of, uh, in the church community, there are people that do that. Like, I'll be a worship leader until my CD gets picked up by, they don't do CDs anymore, but you know what I mean. My album, my song, my song gets produced or some label picks me up and I can get it on all the, all the uh, media outlets. I've heard them say it. This is just a side gig for a while me being a worship leader. By the way, that's why we call this a platform and not a stage. I mean, I, I get it. It's easy to call a stage. We, we, we do that sometimes by accident even, but, but it's a platform. Platforms are for ministering. Stages are for performing, and worship isn't about performing. It's about giving to God. There's a difference. Worship seeks to serve. Even in a corporate worship setting, this attitude of serving should be present. Our worship should be extravagant and should be lavish, but if it continually draws attention to us and not the one who is worthy of worship, then it can qu quickly become self-serving. I mean, I, I was once in a uh, worship service in Pensacola, Florida, when revivals were breaking out down there. And I was in an overflow room because there wasn't room in the main service. And it, you might not know some of the things that went on down there. There's some weird things that happened down there, of course. But whenever, whenever uh, God starts moving, sometimes flesh shows up and does weird things. People show up, right? But there's a lot of amazing things that happened, and this experience was, was really maybe just unique for me, but I was in that room, and they were worship, everybody was worshiping, and our, my, my eyes were closed. And I, all of a sudden, I started feeling my arms just moving, like, like in kind of, a, kind of like this. It was such a deep presence of God, and my arms just started kind of almost like, like, almost like a dance with my arms. My, my, we were crowded, so it wasn't like we could, you know, run and twirl and do all that stuff, right? But I, I was closing my eyes and I, I, I just felt, you know, it, was, it went from this, praising God, lifting my hands, to, to like this, to just this, this, this strange movement of my arms. And I didn't even, I wasn't even cognizant of it. I didn't even know it was happening. And then all of a sudden I realized, I'm like, boy, I, people around me must think I'm weird. That, that human thought jumps in there. Oh, they must think you're weird. You're like, oh, what are you doing? Some kind of interpretive dance or what are you doing there? I, so I opened my eyes just to kind of get my, my bearings and see what was around me. The whole room, the whole room was doing the same thing. It was just a move of the Spirit. It was so beautiful. And I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm not saying that that, that brings the Holy Spirit if we go like this, you know. I, I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying when you get in the presence of God and you start worshiping and you get lost in his presence, you get lost in his worship, don't be surprised if some things start happening and you start expressing in ways that you've never expressed before. I saw people blowing kisses to Jesus. Oh, that's just weird. Well, then kiss them on the forehead then, you know, or kiss a holy kiss. Maybe that's what they were doing. I don't know. But there was just beautiful things happening. And I got to say this. I, I think... 
I think that our culture has become so, again, so sexualized that it hinders our worship. We can't do certain things because that's too sexual. And that is sad that that's the way it is. And maybe that's one of the devil's tricks. Worship is for him. It's not for us. It serves. It doesn't try to take or get something. But know this. True worship will always bring the presence of God, and everything you could ever need can be found in his presence. So I say true worship doesn't take, but you know what? When you're in true worship, you will always receive, even though you're giving. It's the attitude. It's the motive. It's what's behind it. I believe that another piece of stake that Jesus pointed out, first one was that worship serves, uh, but another where's the beef point is that this woman has, this, he pointed out that this woman has left us with is that worship is intimate. It's intimate. I've mentioned that already, but the, the triclinium, the dining room of Simon, food being served in the center, their guests lying on dinner beds with their feet towards the floor where they leaned on their elbows as they reached over and took food. A woman breaks in and she lays at the foot of this dining bed. Picture it cradling Jesus' feet, wiping them, uh, weeping on them, wiping them with their own hair, kissing them continually and pouring this, this fragrant ointment, this expensive perfume upon his feet, filling the room with a bouquet of, of wonderful smells. And everything about this scene is incredibly intimate. In fact, I, I would even say this, and, and, and please don't take this out of context, but in today's society, that would almost seem erotic what happened. But it wasn't. It wasn't sexual. It was beautiful. Let's face it, church, there is no intimacy without vulnerability. This woman made herself so incredibly vulnerable she was a well-known sinner breaking into a pompous religious man's home when he had guests over. And to do what she did to this miracle-working teacher, this is about as vulnerable as it gets. Can you imagine what would be going through her mind? How did she get to the place where she was willing to be that vulnerable? They could have kicked her out. They could have stoned her for who she was, trying to break into a Pharisee's house. That's like a prostitute breaking into the pastor's house when he has guests over. And that, that's scandalous, right? That's scandalous. Things, just, just think about it. This woman was completely vulnerable. There was no pride in her. She wasn't hindered in her worship of Jesus by what others might think of her. She was desperate. He was worthy and she was going to worship him no matter what. Pride often gets in our way, I'm afraid. If I raise my hands as a man, I, I look effeminate. I hope that's not you. And don't miss the fact that this woman also made herself financially vulnerable. Again, a year's wages used up on one act of worship Wow, <laughs> let that sink in a little bit. There are no intimate relationships without people 
being vulnerable. You want intimacy in your marriage? Then become more vulnerable to your spouse. If you want more intimacy in your relationship with Jesus, then allow yourself to lay it all out there for him. Confess it all and open up your whole heart to him. He already knows what's in there anyway. He just isn't going to kick open those doors. He's, he's a gentleman, right? And he waits for the invitation. Making yourself vulnerable means you may hear from him maybe some things that you don't want to hear. But if you will listen and obey, the intimacy level in your relationship with Christ will increase and you will fall deeper in love with him, with the one who loves you unconditionally. So worship serves, worship is intimate. And number three, worship brings peace. Jesus says to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I love that. Her true worship of him resulted in a peace that she could walk in. Philippians 4, 7 says this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There is a peace, an escape from all the world chaos, a place in which you can function and live guarded from the feelings of inadequacy and inner turmoil in which vain imaginations run wild and anxiety surges to levels that are mentally unsustainable. There's a place that you can live where you're guarded from all that. And this sinful woman found that place. It was that place of worshiping Jesus. It's the place of his presence. Psalms 23 says it so beautifully. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He prepares a table before me to enjoy when my enemies are encamped all around me. We can walk and function in that place of peace even in the midst of the chaos of this life. How many know life gets chaotic? How many know anxious thoughts are becoming the norm and not the exception? Vain imaginations run wild in people like never before. We assume the worst and not the best. All of those things. Worship can bring peace to the chaos. Again, Jesus said to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And, and, and let me say this real quick. She didn't have to die to finally be at peace. They're finally at peace. She didn't have to die to be at peace. She was able to find it in this life. Church, I, I hope you're not one of those people who's like, it's just going to be chaotic, it's just going to be terrible, it's just going to be hard, 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 hard until I die and then I'll be at peace. You can have peace here and now in the presence of God. Don't let that lie get into your craw. You don't need that lie. Yes, this world is tough sometimes. Yes, there's problems. There's always going to be problems. But you can be at peace in the midst of them. Yeah. Complete peace. That's what the Lord Jesus offers us. So here's a little to-go box for you today. How do we respond to this? How do we, what, what can we take from this message, from the story? I'm just going to ask you one question. What does your worship norm look like? Is it reserved? 
Do you hold back in anything that brings worth to Jesus? And I know worship is so much more than just music and singing and that, that time in church where we sing a few songs. I get it, it's financial, it's how we live, it's all those things. Anything that brings worth to God, I get that. But there's something really special about music and worshiping Him. Music connects with our emotions. It, op- it, it plows the soil of our heart, if you will, and it just opens us up, right? God gave us music for that purpose. So music becomes a great key within our worship. Is there an intimacy missing from your worship? You just go through the motions of it? Or, or does your heart automatic, automatically lavish worship upon the Lord? Are you walking in his peace? Because the Bible says you can have that peace that passes all human understanding. You can have it through worshiping him in his presence. And this morning, I would just like you to make your way down to the altar as we sing one more song. However this scripture, however this message is spoken to you today, would you respond to the Lord? as you give him the extravagant worship that he deserves. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.